All right. Welcome to Retire Japan TV, where we talk about personal finance, investing, and life in Japan. I am so thrilled to have Dean Yoshimoto with us today.、Uh, I first came across Dean on LinkedIn, where he's, he's very active, he's very helpful,、uh, and I was really impressed with some of his answers. So I asked him to join us on the program, and he's here, and he's very kindly agreed to ask, answer some of your questions as well. So、uh, we'll be having a conversation, and then as we talk, Uh, I'll try and bring in some、uh, of the comments and questions from people watching live. Now, you might have noticed there's only two of us here today. So, my, my co pilot, my co presenter, Daniel, can't make it today. So, I'm a bit gutted about that, but still very excited about talking to Dean. So, hi, Dean. Thanks for coming along tonight. Hey, Ben. Thanks so much for inviting me.、Uh, this is actually the first time we're sort of talking face to face. I think it's just been chat messages on LinkedIn. Uh, glad to be on board here.、Uh, I haven't really been you know, so active. This is actually my fir- first podcast, I would say. Yeah, so I haven't really been active on the internet and stuff. So、uh, please bear with me. I hope to give you guys、uh, some helpful information, some actionable items in、uh, a relatively short period of time. So. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. And, and I think you know, the retired Japan community is quite. Friendly and nice, that、so、should be a, a good start for you. <laughs> okay, take it easy on me. I'm a little bit rusty. Cool. So, because Dean is a professional,、uh, he did ask me to do a quick disclaimer here. So, I'll just read that out super quickly just so we're all on the same page. So, obviously, all views expressed in the podcast are for informational and possibly educational、uh, purposes、uh, and are not. Should not be considered as legal advice. So the information is just for reference and is bound to change in case of any amendments or changes to applicable laws.、Uh, we do not assume any responsibility <laughs> or liability for any errors or omissions in the context of the podcast. And we don't make any warranties about the completeness, reliability, and accuracy of the information expressed in the podcast. So basically, we're just trying to. Provide you with information, and you should certainly consult with a professional or、uh, the legal authorities if you have any questions、uh, before you make any decisions. Having got that out of the way,、uh, Dean, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, I understand you're a US CPA and a、yeah. Japanese tax attorney.、Uh, no, I'm not、tax、qualified、person? in Japan,、uh, just in the US. Yeah, I'm a US CPA. Just a little bit of background about our structure. My wife and I, we work、uh, as a team. She's actually the owner of a Zedishi office. She has a Zedishi license, which is a Japanese tax accountant license, and also an EA, which is an enrolled agent,、uh, basically specializing in, in US and Japan taxes. Myself, I'm a US CPA registered in the state of Arizona.、Uh, and、uh, I'm also focused on, on taxes as well. Uh, so,、um, just a little going back in history,、um, my wife's company started two generations before her, actually. So, her、uh, grandfather started the business a little, bo- little bit after the end of the war. And so, they've been in business about 75 years now. And、um, my, I kind of came into the picture when I decided to work with、uh, you know, US clients. And so, We opened that part of the business in 2005. Initially, I was working from home、uh, and I got a lot of referrals, referrals from like the US Embassy 
and things like that. That was before I was a CPA, but once I had passed the tests and got all my certifications, we decided, oh, why not work in the same office? So we kind of added that portion on. And so we're more or less like a international tax accounting office now. So that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, the wife came first and then the CPA qualification. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, um, we started when we we're first married in Hawaii. I was, uh, you know, working and she was, uh, you know, still studying. And, uh, and then we decided to make the move to Japan. And then she was able to get her uh, uh, Zedishi license after a few years. And so we kind of switched back and forth. And so, you know, she's, she's sort of in charge of the company and I'm, uh, you know, sort of a, more of a helper to her, I guess I would say. <laughs> that sounds very much like my wife's company as well. <laughs> Fantastic. So, um, what kind of work do you do day to day? What does your kind of normal day look like? Are you okay. working for one so, specific yeah. Since, or? yeah, since we're a, a small office, you know, there's all kinds of odds and ends. You know, I, I also, in addition to taxes, I do uh, the billings for the company. I'm sort of the in-house computer guy, although I'm not, you know, a developer or anything. I kind of, from my previous uh, corporate job, I was like sort of like the de facto system administrator. You know, people just basically come to me and complain about why their printout is stuck and things like that. So I kind of carried over to um, the office and I'm sound like the, the IT guy. But uh, my, my main focus is uh, working with U.S. clients with uh, IRS taxes. But, you know, as you can imagine, <clears throat> um, people you know, typically they, they also are from a certain state and depending on the state they're from, such as Hawaii, California, you also have um, state reporting requirements as well as federal IRS, okay? Uh, folks from say like the state of Texas where, you know, they don't have any state income tax, so they have no reporting requirements. So it really depends on where you're from. And uh, also another key issue is Many states uh, consider you to be, even though you move to Japan, they consider you to be a, uh, have a temporary absence from Japan. Uh, not, I'm sorry, not from Japan, a temporary absence from their state. So for example, if you're from Hawaii or California, unless you specifically state, I'm permanently leaving, I'm permanently leaving uh, California, Hawaii, they will assume that you're just temporarily gone. Okay, <clears throat> so what that means is you still, in their eyes, you're still a, uh, California, say, or Hawaii resident. And so you have to keep up with, you know, tax reporting requirements. Essentially, you have to still pay taxes until you formally declare. So that's kind of a big, uh, you know, in Japanese, they say otoshiana, right? You know, a, a trap where if you're not aware of that, you could say be uh, hunky-dory here in Tokyo, say, oh, you know, I just have to report to, uh, you know, the Zemo show in Japan and to the IRS. But then, you know, you might sooner or later, you might get a letter from, say, like the state of Hawaii tax office saying, oh, you know, you our records show you haven't filed, you know, please file as soon as possible. And, uh, you know, a lot of people at that point, they, they panic and they just procrastinate. And then the second letter might be, you know, we give you 90 days to file. And, you know, a lot of people still, they, they sort of freeze up. They don't know what to do. And the next letter typically will you know, according to our records, you owe us you know, $5,000 in taxes. You have 90, min, uh, 90 days to pay. 
So, uh, you know, that's their due process. Typically, they go through maybe three steps or so. But typically, in the end, you know, you once you get to the point where they're billing you, you typically have to just pay or, you know, hire attorney and then go, you know, go through the formal court process. And so, so that gets quite expensive quite quickly. Yeah, that, that's something you, you have to sort of be wary of, you know, it, it's fine if you're, uh, if your state allows you to be a temporary resident and they only tax you on, say, California income, that, that's fine too. You know, you, you uh, still have to file, but in your filing, it'll show that you don't have any Hawaii or California income. So you have to, you know, read the fine print and make sure you're, you're clear. Uh, on the IRS side, there's kind of no gray, gray area. You, you always have to file and usually you don't, you know, I think 60% of the, the residents outside of the U.S., they don't, they don't pay taxes. But if you're sort of a high earner, uh, typically if you make about $120,000 U.S. or more, and if you're single, uh, typically you would pay a little bit of taxes starting from there. And, you know, going, going up into 150, 200,000, you'll just keep on paying more and more taxes. Typically you won't exceed probably 20 or $30,000 from, from our customer experience, you know? So even if you get, if you're at a, you know, CFO or a high level executive here in Tokyo, even at that level, you probably wouldn't pay more than, you know, $30,000 US. Uh, and that's right. thanks due to, and I'll get to this a little bit later in the presentation. And that's, that's due to, as you uh, pay more salary in Japan, or, or you're, you're, I'm sorry, you, as you earn more salary in Japan, you also pay more uh, shotokuze or income tax. And that income tax uh, is eligible for foreign tax credits. So you can offset your, your, uh, your U.S. income with your, the taxes you pay from Japan. All right. So technically, you're not going to be double taxed. Yeah, that, that's the intent. Theoretically. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you know um, Japan and the U, uh, U.K., they have a tax treaty. Uh, U.S. has tax treaties with 70 or so countries, pretty much, you know, every any country that anybody would want to live in. And that's the basic premise is uh, avoidance uh, and mitigation of double taxation. Some treaties are more generous than others. They allow you to uh, resource your income. Uh, uh, but in most cases, the taxation issue by informed tax credit. So in some cases, you might have enough credits to cover your income. In some cases, you won't have enough. And so you'll just pay the, the delta portion, the difference between, say, in our case, the difference between what you'd pay in Japan and, say, typically the higher rate in the U.S., you'll just pay the delta or the difference, if that makes sense. And yeah. so, yeah, I give a kind of a simple example. If the tax rate in Japan is, say, 30%, and the equivalent for the equivalent salary, the tax rate in the U.S. is 40%, then you would pay the 30% to Japan. And the excess between 30 and 40 is what you would pay to the U.S. typically. Because okay. We, we have, down, um, yeah, sorry. We have a specific question about uh, what sure. you were talking about before. So how would you go about telling California or, or Hawaii that you're not residents anymore? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, most states have a uh, online form. Uh, and, you know, if, if you go to, you know, typical in California, it's FTB 
uh, .gov, I believe. In, in Hawaii, they have a website. And most, most states have a pretty modern website where you can accomplish things online and you just you know, fill out the form online. And in the worst case, probably you'll need to print out, say, like a PDF form and fill out you know, your, your new address, basically, and you know, send, it, send, it, send the form in by snail mail. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, right. all in all, it'll probably be a 10, 15 minute process to get that out of the way. Okay. okay. The other, while we're on that topic, Ben, I want to mention also is that um, your, your residence is not just determined by what you put on the form. You have to demonstrate also that you are a bona fide resident of Japan. For example, there's things that could disqualify you. Uh, and this is kind of scary is, for example, um, I'm more or less from Hawaii. So if I were to say register to vote in the state of Hawaii and uh, say like uh, hold an address in Hawaii, as well as uh, say have renew my driver's license in Hawaii, things like that, the state of Hawaii might view me as still a permanent resident of Hawaii, despite me filling out a form, you know, so it's not just uh, the form itself, but it's your your actions as well as your intent. Okay, so even even though you you know accidentally do those things, you know, because a typical person wants to hang on to the driver's license for obvious reasons, you could still make uh, make the claim that well, my intent was to still live in Japan as a permanent resident, but I just wanted to upkeep my license and um, you know vote in in the U.S. But uh, you know you you may have some legal problems down the road. So you might want to make a clean cut sooner or later and say not vote in the U.S. in any state, uh, give up your, your driver's license. Most driver's licenses recently, they, they uh, require you to have a, uh, a residence in that state as well. So you right. probably have to give it up anyway. You know, so. A lot of people tend to give a relative's address as their own just to yeah. kind of avoid yeah, paperwork. That, that's a problem. I, that could come back and bite them, I guess. Yeah. So we have quite a few. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't say a lot, but we have quite a few cases where um, people use their, you know, their old college buddy's address in uh, the U.S. on their tax forms. And you have to realize is that when you file with the IRS, there's a sort of a central database, and the states have access to that information. So soon after. They file. They say, "Oh, Dean, guess what? I, I got a letter from the state of California that says, I, I need to file." It's like, how, how did they find out? It's like, well, when you file with the IRS, if you have a California address, guess what? They're gonna zoom in on that, and they're gonna, you know, sort of take advantage of, of that information. So you have to be careful what kind of information you let out. Even, um, you know, agents are known to scour through the the internet, right? So if you're posting things seeing on LinkedIn or whatever about how you uh, earn tips at a restaurant tax-free or, you know, or you have this side business and, and things and, you know, you're just sort of baiting them to look at your tax return. If you don't have a, a, uh, a, a schedule C or E supplemental or self-employment income schedule on your tax return, you know, they're going to be able to uh, say, call you on that. Well, well on, on the, you know, online, on the internet, on YouTube, you're bragging about all this fancy income and so you know your your self-employment business and this and that and so um you know how come you haven't haven't filed you know have you reported that income so it's so the it's, irs is following you on instagram basically yeah yeah i mean it's your your easy bait right i mean 
um, you know, people, they, they're proud. And, you know, a lot of times you want to you, you wanna brag to your friends, but you just got to be careful of, of what you put out there. Right. We do have another, hopefully, quick question um, sure. about taxes. So this is my first year working in Japan. Can you explain the process for getting a credit for Japanese taxes in the U.S.? I'm from the I'm from Texas, so no state taxes. Would this be the foreign earned income exclusion? I guess. Uh yes, yes. So if you have the slides, um, uh, Ben, this might be a good time to start start the, the slides, or because uh, actually the the first slide addresses that. But oh, okay, um, did did you send me the slides? Uh, I don't. Yeah. Okay. No, no problem. No problem. I don't okay. think I got those. So. <laughs> okay. So, but great, great question from Chris, um, former Texas resident. But um, so to qualify uh, for the foreign, they have what's called the foreign income exclusion. So basically your first $120,000 of income that you earn abroad is excluded from taxable income. Okay. So the way you qualify for this is usually uh, two ways. Uh, either you live in, say, Japan or any other overseas country for a full calendar year. Okay, so that, that would be, uh, say, like if you just came in, in, in June, you would, you would have to, uh, for your qualify, you'd have to go through June of 2024 but also to the end of 2024, because you need a full calendar year. Okay, that's one way to qualify. Or you can pass the time test, which would be 12 consecutive months. And within those 12, so basically from June 2023 to 2024, within those 12 consecutive months, you would have to have at least 330 uh, days within Japan. So basically, you can't go on a vacation for more than say 30 days uh, in that 12 month period. Okay, those are the, the main two ways you'd qualify. And then if you're under 120 grand, basically you would exclude that income on your tax return using various forms and you would be able to be, you know, have no taxable income, you know, be, be tax free for US. However- Okay, Dean, I'm very sorry. I did find the slides. That was entirely my fault. So. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. So. Uh, yeah, as you can see on, on here, uh, you have, you know, the requirements, of course, it says on the top left, start here, do you have foreign income? Yes. Is your tax home in a foreign country? That's another requirement. So you have to be uh, uh, obliged to pay taxes in Japan. So, you know, for, for example, if you're in the U.S. military or certain, uh, say, embassy uh, officials and ambassadors and things, typically, they're under the so-called SOFA agreement. So they're, they're technically, although they're in Japan, technically it's still like they're on U.S. soil as far as taxes. So they're not subject to uh, taxes in Japan. So therefore they can't qualify for the foreign income exclusion. Okay, so you have to be sort of a normal expat. You just came here, uh, non-military. Uh, you, you know, you work for a typical company in, in uh, Japan and you have to pay, you know, shotokuzei, Jiminzei, various other taxes, uh, and that those taxes would qualify. And you also, if you uh, look at the chart, if you switch, if you scroll over to the right, you also have to be either a U.S. citizen or a resident alien. Okay, and resident alien, you know, that's kind of confusing. What's that? Basically, 
it's, it's just a way of saying green card. If you are a, either you're a citizen or if you have a U.S. green card, you're sort of treated the same uh, as far as U.S. taxes go. Okay, and you can see below that, there's sort of a maze of complications on how you qualify and this and that. I won't get into all the details of that, but um, you know, ba basically most U.S. citizens and most green card holders would qualify for the exclusion, okay? And that's a big deal because I think, uh, as I stated earlier, probably 60% or more of expats abroad uh, uh, qualify for this and they pay no U.S. taxes. And it also simplifies the process because it's just an additional form and it's more or less a one-year qualifying period. So it's pretty right. straightforward. Yeah, pretty that's, straightforward. That's nice. If you're yeah. going to be taxed abroad, then I guess this helps. <laughs> yeah. And, I, I, you know, I, I would think most, most people, uh, you know, in this situation, would be able to, you know, say use TurboTax or even just go to the IRS website, download the PDFs and follow themselves. Because basically you just need an additional form for the foreign income exclusion. Okay. You probably are able to do it yourself, I would say. Okay. So a lot of people have a quick don't... question about this, actually. Sure. Um, which is uh, if you do not claim the foreign earned income exclusion uh, and end up paying American taxes, would that make your future social security higher uh, and would it reduce your japanese taxes okay that uh that's an excellent question okay social security tax is kind of its own animal okay in the sense that in, in the u.s okay i i know if you've ever looked at your pay stub you know if you work in the u.s it, it's very confusing right you have uh u.s income stat tax state income tax and then you have uh, things that relate to social security, you know, and it's usually marked as social security taxes. Uh, there's Medicare, things like that. But those, because those are in their own category, uh, by not paying federal tax, uh, you it doesn't affect your social security. Okay, what you're putting into social security. Okay, so I know that's that's a bit confusing, but. Um, basically, once, I guess to put it simply, once you leave the U.S., unless you are specifically paying Social Security taxes, your Social Security benefits will not grow past that point, okay? So that's what, that's what you need to be careful of, right? Because if, say, you, you plan to work for 30 years and the first 10 were in the U.S. and the, you know, the remaining 20 are in, in Japan, uh, that's kind of like my situation, by the way. I worked, worked the first 10 years in the U.S., so I do have 10 years of Social Security. It's not much, uh, but once I came to Japan, uh, you know, for the remaining of my work years, say 20 years, I can pay into the Japanese banking system, okay? Now, there is a way to pay into your U.S. Social Security as an option, okay? And the way that's done, but it's only open to self-employed people, Okay. So if you're, say, in Japan, and, and I think, Ben, you're more or less self-employed, right? Pretty uh, much, yeah. Yeah, okay. So if you're, say, if you're like Ben and you run this self-employment type of business, you would uh, file this, the self-employment form, uh, which is Schedule C, I believe, on your IRS tax return. And you, you would report you know, both your revenue and below that your expenses, uh, subtract expenses for revenue for net income, and then that income 
that you you make from your so uh, from your um, self employment, you could apply the foreign income exclusion to that, but you still are technically required to pay U.S. Social Security taxes on on that. Okay, uh, so you could you could continue you could continue to pay uh, Social Security and and Medicare. That's the requirement. You need to continue to pay Social Security and Medicare, and I think the total is about fourteen uh, percent. Uh, taxes for the two. So that would allow you to continue to accrue social security benefits. Okay. Uh, if you're, however, if you're already paying uh, Nanking in Japan, which, you know, Nanking is, is a statutory requirement, right? So basically you, you have to pay Nanking or technically you might, you might not get your visa renewed, right? Technically you might have to even leave Japan because they won't renew your visa after Five or seven years, or what you know, whatever your uh, visa length is. Okay, so, uh, uh, but uh, you could, uh, if if you don't want to pay in both countries, which is you know sort of you know how you can't really afford to pay pensions in both Japan and the U.S. So they have a it's called a totalization agreement. Okay, the Social Security totalization agreement between the U.S. and Japan allows you to pay in one country. Say you pay continue to pay in Japan. And you don't pay in the U.S. and there's a procedure for, for doing that, uh, but you're able to uh, apply the Japan the total the total credits to either country, okay, or or both. So uh, it gets kind of confusing. There are a lot of rules, okay. So you could say, uh, in my case, in 30 years, I would have 20 years accrued from living the last. 20, uh, you know, living and painting the Japan system, 20 years, and my first 10 years in the U.S. So total, I have 30 years. So I could, say, run some scenarios on the, on the spreadsheet. Uh, also, uh, the uh, SSGov site in the U.S. has some, uh, you know, scenario analysis type, you know, cal calculation worksheets that you could fill in and, and figure out what, what's the best situation for you. You might get more Social Security if you get paid in the U.S., uh, or you might get more if you get Nenkin from Japan. In some cases, you could maybe say split it up, say conceptually half and half Japan and the U.S. Um, so you'd have to kind of run through those scenarios and see which is best for you based on your tax situation. So it gets, it gets very complicated. Uh, but, you know, of course, we can help you with those types of uh, analysis. Uh, and, you know, we have, we have done a few of those. Um, What's the normal result? What's the typical result in terms of uh, optimal strategy? Yeah, I, I think I think typically most people they neglect the U.S. Social Security side, and most people um, they're they're not they're not self-employed. So typically, it's it's better for them to keep paying into to linking on the Japan side. Okay, we have another question about basically I think non-filing basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, great I guess question. this person lived in Japan, didn't bother filing their tax returns in yeah. the U.S. And what's the consequence going to be? So I think this is, I wouldn't say a, um, a frequent problem, but I, but I think it's sort of half, you know, there's sort of half and half compliance. I would say half the people I meet have not filed at all and half have been, you know, diligently keeping up with the system. Okay. So, um, 
I think the thing you, you have to be most worried about is, um, you know, uh, if you look at this exclusion at, at the top of it, it says, can I claim either exclusion or the deduction? Okay, so the key word is claim. It, it must be claimed or else basically you don't have it. Okay, so it's not, uh, it's not a, a, a given right. It's something you have to uh, consciously go out and claim, okay? And the way you claim it, of course, obviously, is by filing a tax return, okay? So as long as uh, the IRS doesn't come to your friend and say, um, you know, sooner or later, they might uh, pick up on your, your friend not paying, you know, taxes and send out letters and so forth. And perhaps in the last resort, they, they might send a nasty letter that says, um, you know, you have to file, but even if you do file, you are not able to claim the foreign income exclusion, okay? And that would be really devastating. They have the right to do that. It's not a right. It's a it's a privilege, and it's a privilege you have to claim the foreign income exclusion. So um, I guess what I'm saying is, uh, yes, it, it, is a, it is a huge danger in that sense, okay? So can you imagine- uh, Ignoring it is not gonna make it go yeah. away. It's, it's just going to, yeah, it's going to snowball, okay, right? So let's say if he's uh, typically, if if the typical American, I think, you know, in the 30s or 40s, by, by that age, you're typically making 100 grand, 150 grand, something like that. And typically you might tip over above the exclusion threshold. And also, um, uh, you know, you might have a family and kids and, and basically... You know, you just have a lot at stake, right? I mean, you're, you're not just, a, you know, typically people come here to Japan as a single and they do the JIT program and they don't really think about the future. So they're not so diligent about uh, uh, filing U.S. taxes, but it, it, it compounds. Uh, there is a statute of limitations. Um, and a, a lot of people may mention, well, they can only come after me for, for three years or whatever statute of limitations. And they try to play lawyer and uh, you know, hope that they're they're protected by the statute. But it, it's very clear that um, in many cases there is no statute of limitations. Uh, for example, in cases of, of crime, uh, or if there's substantial um, uh, what they call tax evasion, substantial amounts of tax evasion, right? So they they could uh, perhaps um, extend the limitation period indefinitely. You know, it could be so you, you would basically have no limitations, no right. And yeah, and I guess I guess in, in the end, uh, it would be very hard for you to to move back because, you know, once you have an address in the U.S., instantly they would they would bill you for it. Right. And they would come after your assets, your your bank accounts, your house, things like that. So it's very, very dangerous. So don't uh, ignore the IRS. Then. <laughs> yeah. So please uh, take care of that right away. Um, you might even, if if they're a high earner and the period is over ten years, it might even it might even be wise to hire an attorney in that case. You know, because probably if you're not filing U.S. taxes, you're not um, complying with with FATCA regulations. Well, FATCA is the um, Foreign Account uh, uh, Reporting Act, and so. There's layers of reporting you need to do for your bank accounts, for your assets, if it exceeds certain thresholds. And those penalties are typically $10,000 a pop for, for fence, per fence, okay? So if they send you a warning and you don't reply, it's $10,000. Uh, if you 
If they tell you to file AF bar and you don't file, then that's another 10,000 they might add on top of that. If you have additional counts that they find, you know, it'll probably be another 10,000. So it could easily be $30,000 or more of, of fines, right? So basically for most people that could be, you know, half or more of their life savings, right? It, it could change your life drastically. So, um, but the, you know, they're, you know, I'm kind of doing the scare talk, but on the bright side, there, there's ways to come clean, okay? And and typically what we, we, what we recommend for people is to uh, file a certain amount of years. You know, I can't say whether it's three or five, but typically it, it's less than 10, but we would have to take a look at how much money you made and so forth. Um, you know, what, what your, we'd have to do more or less a risk assessment to see um, what your risk is, you know, where you're, you know, also what it makes a difference. Do you, do you have a house in the U.S.? Do you have bank accounts that they could garnish? You know, that, you, that would increase your risk pro profile, of course. But if all your assets are now in Japan and you really don't have any assets in the U.S., then it's also a different scenario, you know, so. Right, they might be more see, amenable to negotiate at that point. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really case by case, you know. Okay, so, we have another tax filing question, which might be good here. Um, so this person's been filing, Lawrence has been filing using the foreign tax credit method, uh, which allows him to claim tax child tax credit. Uh, would it be better to use the foreign and income exclusion method? Or in what cases would that be better? Okay, Ben, I, I have to commend you. You have a really, really intelligent audience members here and they're all <laughs> asking great questions. And so, so Lawrence, yeah, I, this is a point I wanted to get to uh, is because a lot of people assume that you can either take the exclusion or the foreign tax credit. Because if, if you, you know, read the instructions that the instructions in, in the, uh, the IRS instructions kind of alludes to either one or the other, but the, uh, the truth is you can take both. Okay. Ooh. So the, the way that works is that uh, say, for example, I, I just, I think the example is the easiest way to, to visualize this. Say you make 200,000 US, okay? And as I mentioned, the form um, income exclusion excludes the first 100,000 or so, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So that leaves you with 100,000 taxable income, okay? But on, on that remaining income, what you can do is you can apply the foreign tax credit to that remaining income, okay? So, however, your foreign tax credit will be limited to a percentage of taxes you pay, okay? So how, so how do you calculate that percentage? It would be, uh, this is sort of just, it's more complicated than this, but typically uh, because you excluded half of your income, your income was 200,000, and excluded 100,000, that would be half or 50%. Uh, therefore, you would only be able to use the remaining 50% of foreign tax credits, okay? So I know that that might be kind of confusing, but basically you can use both, but you would have to reduce your foreign tax credit based on that percentage that I just mentioned. Okay. Right, what if your income's under the foreign earned income limit? Can you yeah. choose to use some of that allowance or do you have to use the whole 120,000? Yeah. Okay. The, the thing about the income exclusion is once you use it, the IRS wants you to con continue to use it every year. Okay. So 
they have a rule is uh, that if you don't use it in a subsequent year, uh, uh, say like it was more beneficial or you had some sort of reason that you wanted to use, it was more beneficial to use foreign tax credits, say the following year, uh, you can, but the penalty is that you won't be able to go, go back to the old system, the foreign income exclusion for, for fi five years, okay? And after that five years is done, you have to ask the IRS for permission. You have to uh, essentially go through a, a letter ruling process, okay? And that, that typically costs maybe $1,000 just to go through that process, okay? So you're gonna have to pay money. I mean, in the end, it might be worthwhile, okay? It, it, you know, because in the end, you, you may have run the numbers and it saves more taxes to, you, to for you to go back and forth between both systems, but you don't have a lot, you don't have carte blanche, you don't have the freedom to go back and forth as you wish. You have to go through these procedures, you have to ask the IRS for, for paying permission and pay those fees. And in the end, they could uh, reject you, right? They could say, no, no, I'm sorry, you have to stick to the foreign uh, tax credit system. Okay, in that case, uh, it could be detrimental, uh, you know, depending on your situation, right? Whether you're making a salary or if you, you know, if you change from salary or self-employed, it might be beneficial to switch and things like that. But uh, if you can't go back to, to the system that's preferential, then you'll just lose out. So just, you know, make your decisions wisely when you, you make the decision to change from one to the other. You can always use both, okay? I guess the, the key point to sum it up, once you use the foreign income exclusion, you need to keep using it pretty much. Okay. So you want to really think ahead before making any decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So every, I, I think the weakness that I see most, most Americans, uh, not just Americans, I mean, anybody, right. My, myself included, I, you know, the, you know, you have to look past, you know, uh, what you're present. You have to forecast what, when am I going to be doing five years from now? Am I going to retire in 15 years? Am I going to, you know, a lot of people typically they'll work, uh, a salary job for the first 10 years. And of course, they, if they're ambitious, they want to quit their job and start their own business. And then their tax situation changes at that point. And then, you know, so on and so forth. And also, as you get older, you accumulate investments. And so you need, uh, you know, if you buy a house, I, I know, Ben, you, you're doing a lot of, lot of uh, podcasts and posts about owning a house and, and things like that. Uh, and so, the interest earned deduction or the interest paid deduction, you know, all those things just add up. And as you get older, your taxes get more complicated. You know, so I have some clients, they, they file, a, you know, 100 pages of, of tax returns. This is incredible, right? I mean, it, wow. it's, it's like, a, yeah, it's almost like a phone book, you know, it's, you could use it as a weapon almost. I mean, yeah, so, uh, yeah, as you get older and wiser, you know, typically you might start your own Japanese KK or you might invest, partner up with a friend, go 50-50 on a, on a KK, things like that. And as long as you're a U.S. citizen, there's tons of reporting you have to do still, you know, the uh, so-called informational returns. You know, so as an American, uh, uh, any pretty much anything you do the, is reportable. If you have, uh, you know, income from a a trust or a state, a foreign estate, if you are involved in a, um, a foreign company. Also, 
uh, I think Ben, you alluded to in some of your uh, NISA and uh, your other podcasts, uh, Americans have it typically hard because the of the PFIC rules, right? I was about to so, ask about that. Yeah, so, so maybe it, this is a good segue to go into that. So, you know, say for example, um, you know, once you live in, in Japan, typically, I mean, all your income is typically yen, right? Unless you have a rental in the US. Um, so you're gonna be putting your, your yen savings away in a savings account and, you know, earning nothing basically. So. Now they have ESA and all these other investments. Is it worthwhile for you to, to get those? And uh, you have to, I, I think, uh, view it with caution. Okay. And the biggest caution is, uh, I would say, or the biggest uh, problem is that the U.S. has very complicated rules for owning uh, shares in a foreign company. Okay. They have so-called PFIC rules. Okay. And P stands for passive. Okay. So if, if you if you invest in the typical uh, mutual fund, that's a, a passive foreign company. Okay, if they earn either seventy five percent of their income from passive investments or have fifty percent or more of passive income assets. Okay, and your typical mutual fund meets those thresholds. Okay, so you you fall under uh, PFIC reporting requirements. Okay, so your your typical uh, this is true especially I, i've done some research on this by the way and uh with japanese uh j reits for example real estate investment trusts in japan typically have a corporate structure so they definitely would fall under pfic rules okay and okay so what, something like toyota would be okay because it's yeah to toyota is is uh you know is a a typical company like toyota is not you know it's not a, obviously they have employees they sell cars. They have product development. So they're, you know, they're a normal company. They're not passive. But a mutual fund is basically pooled money, and they're just throwing it into the stock market or bonds or whatever. And it's pat. So there's a big difference between passive income and active income. So Toyota would would be, I would say, active income, for for the most part, right? They're they're selling cars. They're they have offices globally. So you can, yeah, you can invest in Toyota and it, it wouldn't be a problem. Okay. But if you invest in a, say a certain kind of a fund that includes Toyota, then you might have a problem because that fund might be classified as a, a passive foreign corporation. Okay. Okay. So, so what what's, what's the problem with PFICs then? Okay. So, yeah. So getting to that, um, it, it's very complicated and the, the taxation on that, I, I guess to put it in one, it's it's punitive taxation. And uh, under this taxation, you might have to pay as much as, a, say, a 50% rate or, or more on your, on your, on your say, like dividends. Can you imagine? Okay, can you imagine, right? You're typically paying, wow. uh, yeah, you're paying, uh, you know, say you're in the 20% tax bracket, 25%. So typically you pay the same amount on dividends earned, 20, 25%. Uh, on dividends as well as your wages, right? But say, oh, you you bought this JRE, which is a PFIC, and because of the the, the punitive tax scheme, you're paying fifty percent, say, on just for those dividends, right? So you might as well not buy it. I mean, yeah. if you're paying that much tax, I mean, you know what what the hell, right? You, you might as well put the money under your mattress, right? I mean, so and not not only. Uh, do you pay? But I think some of the forms, if you look at the IRS instructions, uh, the uh, the uh, 
the typical time to complete the form is 24 hours or something, right? So can you imagine a typical accountant would, would probably charge you 50 to $100 an hour, right? So can you, okay. can you imagine paying $2,000 or more for, for just the PFIC reporting form? I mean, it's just- And that's for each right? one, right? You probably, yeah, probably for each. Yeah, can you imagine? So if you own a J. Reed for Tokyo, you know, or for uh, Mitsui Fudosan or whatever, you know, you own two J. Reeds, that's probably, you know, $4,000 just for the forms, right? Which and allow you to pay that, a yeah. tax on, on the top of that, yeah. I mean, you're going to make maybe, I don't know, 3 3% in dividends or whatever. And, you know, after taxes, it's you're going to make less than 1% or less net after, you know, is 1% worth it, right? I mean, you, you might as well leave it in the bank. So uh, be, be careful. Uh, some, some companies will have, you have to sort of, uh, scrounge around for this. This information is not easy to find. I think uh, certain countries like Canada have done a great job with their. You know, if you if you look up Canadian funds, uh, because they they also have this PFIC problem. But if you look up a typical Canadian mutual fund, they have PFs, PFIC information right on the website. Uh, this this fund has fifty percent of you know PFIC. Blah blah blah. Right. But in, in Japan, there you know there's not enough interest or investments for, for them to put it on their site. So you're, you're sort of on, it's the wild west. You're sort of on your own. You have to research. I've done a little bit of research, but uh, most of, most of the research I see, it was done in the eighties or nineties. You know, there's nothing really current about what kinds of funds are PFICs. And some companies might be too, right? Some of these holding companies that. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. So, you know, own yeah, you mentioned Toyota. So there's Toyota Motor, but, you know, typically there's like a Toyota holding company that might be, say, holding all sorts of foreign exchange or things, you know, because they do a lot of uh, business abroad. So naturally they're going to have foreign exchange reserves, which they're going to put into investments as well, earn interest and dividends on. Uh, until they decided to use it for operations, of course, and you could be, uh, you know, unknowingly investing in those those companies as well, right? So, probably at the least, you know, that could be a few percentage of the the stock you own, and you know, you might not even know it. Right? I mean, even so the, the, I, I, I think the, even I think even the company executives don't even know, right? Because right, it's, it's so, why, why would yeah. they, right? If they're listed in Japan, it's, it's a so, US yeah. tax rule. Like. So I think what's happening is that Americans are being sort of, I wouldn't say discriminated against, but they're sort of being discouraged from investing abroad, right? Because, uh, as you know, it's, you know, it's really difficult for Americans to, to say, like, cash a, a check or to... Uh, you know, open savings accounts and things like that, because many, many banks will just, once you say you're an American citizen, they'll just, you know, say, uh, you know, turn you away or you have tons of extra forms you have to, to fill out. Uh, and they don't know themselves how to fill them out because they're so little, if they're, they're so new and the laws are changing all the time. And so uh, best, best to avoid any complicated investments as, as much as possible. So I think the basic advice is for Americans to just invest in America using U.S. brokers and, and U.S. ETFs and so on. Yeah, yeah, def definitely, definitely. So 
uh, I think in the past there there was you know the typical uh, my typical customer would invest in say E-Trade, Schwab, Merrill Lynch, uh, TD Ameritrade, and slowly but surely those options have just disappeared. You know, uh, I, I get calls every so often saying, you know what they they said uh, because I'm American I have to close my account. What should I do? And so I think there's we're down to maybe one brokerage company, one or two brokerage companies that do take Americans living abroad. Okay. The the other thing you can do is uh, you might be able to use a relative's address, you know, uh, and so. Uh, but that's, then that gets you into yeah, the that, that, residency, yeah, that, doesn't it? You might, yeah, you might want to check into that, you know, because there could be legal ramifications for that as well. But uh, typically, the people who still have the accounts uh, are more or less using their old address from when they, you know, when they they used to live in the U.S., they opened an account then and they moved to Japan, but they just kept the account open and and some companies i know they grandfather you in if you if you're in that case but they're just not opening any new accounts because there's there's many more laws now yeah there is one option in japan which is the interactive brokers company which recently switched oh, to right? japan so interactive brokers japan is now taking new clients so if you're a u.s citizen that might be a good option for you if you haven't got oh, okay. accounts already Okay, that that's news to me. The the only other one I've heard was I think it either was TD Ameritrade or E Trade. I think were the other ones I heard of. But I know Merrill Lynch pretty much kicked everybody out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've talked about filing IRS taxes and we've talked about PFIC. So are there any other kind of things that people don't tend to know about that they should? Oh, okay. So. Um, uh, going back to the slideshow, I think the last two slides uh, talk about, uh, it would be, I think, then pages eight and nine, talk about tax, tax treaty. Yeah, okay, there, there's one. Uh, this, this one's kind of uh, sideways. I don't know if you can turn it over. Uh, yeah, I don't think I can do that at the moment. Oh, okay. Maybe if you <laughs> Everyone go, just turn your heads. And... Yeah. Maybe if you, go, if you go to the next slide then, uh, page, page nine. Okay, okay. so... This basically, tax treaties are very complicated. So I think if you just look at this table, it's kind of self-explanatory. You see I've circled Japan. And if you look look under, there's columns at the top, interest, dividends, pensions, and annuities. So you can see the numbers there in those columns, 15, 12 and a half, 10. Those are percentages, okay? So um, if you're... A say uh, this doesn't apply typically to Americans, but this applies more to non-Americans or, or Japanese. I would say Japanese citizens who uh, invest in the U.S. Uh, and receive dividends would be limited. So if you look like in the dividends column, it says uh, column six paid by U.S. There's a 15 in that in that column. If you go down to Japan, or or rather a 10. So mm. your, the maximum rate that you would pay on dividends you earn from the U.S. as a Japanese citizens, if you claim and apply the tax treaty, would be 10%, which is very favorable, right? Typically, you would pay 20% uh, or more as a Japanese citizen. If I think it's 30 if you, if you don't. Yeah. You don't have this kind of thing, the default. Yeah, yeah I, I think that, yeah, the, I think that gives you the typical withholding is 30%. <clears throat> but if you fill out the certain forms, you can uh, uh, claim exemptions from withholding. So they won't withhold anything if you fill out the forms properly. I think you have to have 
either a social security number or ITIN number, claim those tax treaty benefits. And, um, uh, but you still need to say, um, uh, file a uh, non-resident tax return such as the 1040NR and, and pay those taxes typically. Okay, so, um, but to sort of address tax treaty issues in general, the tax treaty is pretty much the, the document that makes the foreign tax credit, it gives the legal basis for the foreign tax credit. Okay, so that's, it's the document that talks about double taxation and reducing or eliminating the intent to reduce or eliminate double taxation between citizens of Japan and the US, okay? And there's all these different uh, articles, one through 15, I believe, and each article um, describes the situation as to say like real estate or capital gains or personal property. There's all these different categories. And, uh, but basically this table here, you know, sums it up. And so you can get treaty benefits. Um, the, the thing is the typical US person uh, is bound by what's called a savings clause, okay? And a savings clause is kind of a simple way of saying, if you're a US citizen, the treaty doesn't apply to you. The US, <laughs> so, so US tax laws supersede the tax treaty for most Americans because of the savings clause, okay? Which is unfortunate. Okay. Okay. So the U.S. But, people have to file U.S. taxes, and people yeah. who are not U.S. get to avoid them if the treaty. Yeah, is yeah. So um, in most cases, uh, for non-U.S. citizens, tax treaty supersedes local statute, right? So what does that mean? So if Japan says you you normally pay thirty percent, but the tax treaty says you pay ten, tax treaty rules. Okay, which is which is excellent. Okay. Uh, the U.S. tax treaty is also very beneficial for Japanese as far as portfolio interest. Okay, so like if you have a, a Schwab account, a bank account in the U.S., for example, typically that interest won't even be taxable, uh, or be or be taxable at, at reduced rates. Okay, we have a few questions that have built up. Could we do a little kind of quick fire round? <laughs> okay, sure thing. These okay, are all I'll keep kind my of. Shorter. <laughs> slightly random questions so the first one is about uh inheritance taxes after people leave japan so i think this was amended so this law when this law came in people were quite upset and then they, they kind of changed the rules slightly to make it less of a burden yeah okay and so this is uh, I'm, I'm not licensed in Japan, my, my wife is, but um, I've read up quite a bit. And um, yeah, there's there's all sorts of uh, uh, inheritance that relate. And, you know, there's things like exit tax and inheritance that relates to, uh, well, you either, you either pay it before you leave or you can elect to postpone it for five years and pay it back when you return and things like that. And I guess... You know, the, as far as the follow through, that's, you know, I guess you're asking, how is it enforced, right? I mean, so it's quite you know, new. So we don't really yeah, know. Yeah, do you don't, you don't, really know, but yeah, but, um, you know, I, I think what you could assume is that, you know, the extent of the law is, you know, typically it only, the extent of the law is only uh, local, typically, right? But, 
as you know, I mean, if you're, say, like a international fugitive or criminal, right? I mean, you know, it, they, they will find, you know, find a way to go after you using extradition and so forth, right? They will get you the U.S. or whatever uh, through extradition treaties to, you know, have them send you back to Japan to face uh, the courts here, right? But, uh, you know, you have to be quite a big violator for them to do that, but has um, to be worth it, right? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, the, the whole Carlos Ghosn thing, right? I mean, um, it, it it's not out. It's not impossible for them to do that, but you know, is it worthwhile and things like that? So you have to weigh those risks. But then, also, I think you have to uh, when when you're looking at, I think with any country, not keeping up with the tax laws in any country, I think you have to uh, be ready to abandon your your visa status and you know if you're not going to return to japan i you know and i, I can't really i don't want to give you visa advice here but you know typically um you know you have to think well if i don't follow the rules then if i return to japan i probably wouldn't be granted a visa right because it's going to mm. be on my record i mean japan visa regulations are very strict um <clears throat> if you look at some of the blogs they say if you miss one pension payment, right, one banking payment, then they're not going to redo your renew your permanent residence. I mean that's pretty harsh. So if you imagine you skip out on inheritance, which is much worse, right? I mean it's more it's more deliberate probably. Uh, it's probably a, a large amount of money. Uh, so you'd probably be in even more trouble, right? So yeah, you'll probably get a knock on the door one day. <laughs> Yeah, very so, polite people in suits who want to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, I think you're. I think generally, what you're looking at too is that uh, even the U.S. is making it hard for people to basically. I think people would typically, if they got into trouble, they would just split town and move to the Cayman Islands or something, right? But you're even seeing in the U.S. now they're putting restrictions on passport renewals. So uh, this is very recent too. In the last uh, three years, I think or so. Uh, if you owe taxes of more than U.S. taxes of more than fifty thousand, um, the the IRS and the visa administrations they talk to each other, and you can't even re they'll, they'll revoke your passport, right? So this has even happened. I think uh, one of one of um, Trump's uh, campaign managers or something pretty much was stopped on the runway. He was in some foreign country, about to the plane was about to take off, and then. The authorities came in and said, "No, you can't leave because your passport is is invalid <laughs> as of as of now, right?" Wow. I mean, that's yeah, that's how. I mean, and they <clears throat> and he was, you know, some sort of international criminal, whatever. They wanted him really bad, right? So, so going back to what I was saying, if, you know, if they want you, they will find a loophole to to get you. So, um, you know, just keep that in mind. If you know, okay, if we do, have a super technical question now which is, <laughs> I don't quite understand. <laughs> so how is a Roth IRA conversion treated for a Japanese citizen and non-permanent resident? And how is VA disability treated in Japan? So very, two very oh, technical. Okay. Yeah, okay. I would, I would say, um, I'm not an expert on VA, but I know, uh, you know, for, for investments, Roth IRAs, they're so-called US tax advantage vehicles, right? So um pretty much all all the u.s even even traditional iras roth iras you know they they don't qualify as 
for for tax benefits outside the U.S. Okay, uh, so um, uh, if say you know I, I had this come up fairly recently as well too. So if you're if you're in Japan long term, uh, for example, Japan doesn't treat uh, you know typically the benefit of Roth IRA is is, is of course you pay taxes upfront or you you put into the Roth, Roth IRA after tax dollars so that when you retire the distributions from the Roth IRA are tax free typically right if if you're in the US US citizen living in the US it's tax free but if you're a US citizen in Japan uh, they don't recognize Roth right so if you're a permanent mm -hmm. resident you you pay taxes on your worldwide income Roth is not tax advantaged or anything it's it's nothing it's just a, a regular fund as far as japanese sees it so you'll pay you know uh, typically uh, on distributions probably that would be regarded as uh similar to wage income so you would pay a graduate degree anywhere from probably 15 to 50 percent just as you would any other japanese income okay uh not non-permanent residents um that's a little bit different you know i think the first five years if you live five you have to live five years or more out of the last 10 years to be considered a permanent resident but as a non-permanent resident it's more dependent on whether you remit the money to japan or if you keep it abroad okay so that's that's one loophole i guess you can take advantage of but um it's only good for five you know basically for five years right so um what happens after that you know well you have guess what you have to pay taxes if, if you're going to bring that money in or even if it even if you leave it abroad in say the us or some other country outside japan you still technically have you know are liable for taxes on that because all all money remitted to japan or not is taxable after the five years and so it's not a good long-term strategy right i mean you know so You're basically, right the systems don't really work very well together. Yeah, I mean, Roth IRA, I mean, typically, you, you start, you think about a Roth IRA, you know, 10, 15 years in advance, right? I'm going to retire someday, and therefore, I want to save money. But if, you know, if this non-resident thing uh, is only good for five years, then what, you know, what do you do after that? You know, do you, are you, you're forced to go back to the U.S., or at that point, do you pay taxes on, you know, it's just... So you're better off not not getting into that and, uh, you know, just maybe, you know, doing something else, finding some some uh, loopholes in the NISA system, you know, non-PFIC, you know, regular. I guess NISA would be the opposite, right? So NISA would be taxable on the U.S. side. Because uh, NISA yeah, is yeah, tax yeah, that, in Japan, but if you're a yeah, U.S. Yeah, that, citizen, yeah, that, that's a good point. But also, um, Ben... Um, so you have to, re you have to remember that, um, you know, you might be able to apply if you have, uh, accumulated foreign tax credits, uh, oh. you might be able to, yeah, you won't, you won't be able to, uh, apply credits you earn now, but typically, uh, I think one of, in one of my slides, I don't recall which one I talk about unused foreign tax credits that you can, uh, carry them back uh yes here it is. okay you can carry back one year or carry forward 10 years okay so this is where you have a little bit of flexibility so say like um say like you um had some taxes 
that you paid on, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, I mean, typically you own both NISA and non-NISA funds, right? Typically you don't just buy NISA. So let's assume you own both, okay? So both uh, NISA and non-NISA fall into uh, what's called passive category foreign tax credit. They're divided up into baskets depending on the type of income. So dividends, capital gains, and interest would be in the passive income basket, okay? So you can sort of in intermingle these foreign tax credits and you can carry, and as it says on the slide, you can carry it back one year and carry for 10 years, okay? So you have a lot of flexibility. So basically, I guess what I said is kind of confusing, but to, to put it in one sentence, you can use the credits you paid on your non-NISA accounts to offset the taxes on your NISA, NISA accounts as it pertains to IRS taxes, okay? So they're they're fungible. This, this might be a good way to reason to have an accountant. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, they're they're fungible within the category. Okay, I guess is that you know so pat you know passive credits whether it's NISA non NISA, uh, capital gains interest it's all passive. Okay, so if it's within the basket, you can use it to offset other types of investments. Okay, I've got some more quick fire questions for you. Um, I think we're kind of done with specific questions from the audience. I've got a few quick ones. So, for example, uh, what kind of person would you say needs a CPA and, and what kind of person maybe doesn't need one? Okay, so... Um, CPA, I guess I, I would say, I, I don't want to toot my horn or anything, but it's a, it's a hard exam. Uh, you know, if you talk oh, to... Needs to needs to employ a, a CPA, so not, not oh, the qualification. Oh, oh okay. So um, if you need a CPA as a, you know, as a, as a tax as advisor a or tax preparer, yeah, you don't... Uh, typically, there might be several categories of tax preparers. Uh, like my wife is an uh, EA or enrolled agent. So... Uh, she took the test that's put out by the IRS. In my case, I'm um, certified on a state level, as I mentioned, state of Arizona. Okay. Um, so uh, in some instances, my license, because it's state only, it's a little bit uh, inflexible. But I think overall, what you want to look at is the person's experience. Okay. There's a lot of CPAs who uh, don't do taxes. They only do, say, there's, there's a lot of areas of accounting, right? There's, there's auditing, there's corporate accounting, there's, uh, you know, ta there's tax, of course. And, you know, uh, there's people who work in the investments, investment banking, people have CPAs as well. They do a lot of, you know, stock analysis and things like that, but they don't necessarily know taxes. And even within taxes, there's individual and corporate as well. Okay. So, what I'm saying is you just you want to look at their their resume, basically. You want to ask them intelligent questions. Uh, I'm an individual. So what's your experience with, with individuals? Okay. And I, I mean, individual, I invest in, uh, I have a lot of Cayman Island investments and this and that. I, I have companies in, in Japan and China. And so, you know, a, a typical accountant won't have all that experience, frankly speaking. I, you know, I don't, I, I've never you know, done taxes related to Cayman on and so forth. So my specialty, my competence, we would probably be limited to Japan and U.S. only, okay? And uh, if, if you, uh, uh, I, I do actually 
you know, have some customers in other countries like Singapore, Hong Kong, but, you know, I do less than probably five or, or less a year of those, right? So as opposed to Japan, U.S. taxes, I do dozens and dozens a year. So, of course, I have a lot more experience. Okay, so um, we're sort of heavy on more individual side. So if you have sort of a big KK or, you know, that has multiple subsidiaries and you're uh, buying components in Japan and exporting them to the U.S. and you have factories in the U.S. and things like that, that's that's very that would be difficult for someone like like myself because there's things called uh, transfer pricing involved where you'd have to price those those items that you're transferring out of Japan uh, and putting them into the the U.S. Uh, you know balance sheets and so forth and so um, basically you just yeah you just need to look at the person's specific background and know how to ask the right questions you know and I think the the most straightforward way to do that is just to say you know, here's here's what I am. You know, I'm a uh, uh, banker or whatever. This my salary is three hundred fifty thousand. I have a hundred thousand in stock options. I have some, you know, E-Trade accounts abroad. I also own fifty percent of the KK here in Japan. Can you help me? You know, if you're upfront uh, from the outset, you know, a lot of people they don't they don't tell you all this because uh, I think a lot has to do with trust, right? They don't they don't trust mm. you with their personal financial information. So you know, you, you sign, you said, yeah, sure. Okay. I, I can take your case. And then suddenly they're like, Oh, by the way, I have, you know, a company in the U S and uh, you never mentioned that. And so, by the way, you know, the yeah. Quote, yeah. <laughs> oh, so, you know, suddenly your quote, uh, you know, my price quote goes from $500 to $2,000, you know, just based on that. And like, what, you know, that's too expensive. And you know, what a rip off, but and, you know, come on, you, know, you gotta be upfront with me from the start. Right. So right. let's be fair to each other. Yeah. So to flip that. So for example, we've had a, a couple of questions like this. So what kind what would you say would, would mean that someone needs a CPA rather than just doing the paperwork themselves? Yeah. So um okay, I guess you know, if I could rephrase that question, can are you able to replace the expertise of a CPA? Okay, I guess that's you as an individual say like I would say um to to each individual and i've been asked that point blank and what i say is well if you're good you have to be good at numbers and also good at at uh law interpreting laws right i mean uh taxes are basically laws converted into percentages and so forth in various situations so you have to be able to uh interpret laws and of course you have to be good at math but you don't have to know calculus you just it's basically uh, high school math, right? It's mostly multiplication. You have a 30% rate times the principal, 100 grand or whatever, you know, and you figure out the taxes. You have to know how to do fractions. You, know, you have to feel comfortable also with exchange rates. You know, a lot of people get confused. Are you able to say, Ben, for example, would you be able to convert $100,000 US to yen in, in your head, you know, right? If you're able to say, you know, if you're at that level, then probably, you know, you might be suited for for doing tax accounting, okay. Um, uh, I'm sorry, what was I going to say? Okay, so um, not not only knowledgeable in law, but how many hours do you have to spend? Okay, the laws change very frequently. Okay, since I've been here, there's been you know I was here in Japan, and then 9/11 happened. So then you had things like the Patriot Act, uh, and following that, you know, recently you have with COVID the CARES Act, and each time 
there's all these sometimes major, uh, sometimes it's minor changes to to the tax code. You know, I mean, they, they went from, uh, you know, uh, a situation where a lot of Americans had to pay alternative minimum tax and then they raised exemption, for example. So typically you won't pay alternative minimum tax now with the, the latest laws. But, you know, they're putting limits on things like, I think last year you could only deduct 50% of meals, uh, business meals. And this year and next year, it's back to 100%, right? So how do you how do you keep track of that? I mean, you have right. to know it that the law, it was only good for, say, 2018 19 because of covid or something like that right or uh you know some 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 crazy law or you know you, you just don't know and uh how much time and energy do you have to keep up with that um and i guess what i what i could do also now is offer for those who do want to put in that effort there is if you go to the irs website they do have um uh e you can sign up for emails and that's what I did when I first started my career is I, I went there and I subscribed to, they have um, automated, e they have an automated email service. So if you go to IRS, you just, uh, I think you type in, in the search parameters, e email and informational emails or something like that. And you can subscribe to uh, anything that, you know, you have all these categories. You can press, I, I think in my case, I press international topics, international tax topics, and I get bombarded with, Probably I'll five this in the in the comments. Yeah. I think I just found that link. So yeah, so you can uh, what I'm saying is you can subscribe to those, and you know if you have interest, if you want to say probably a lot of you do your taxes on your own and you want to continue to do taxes, but you want you're sort of unsure, you need some information sources. So uh, you go online, but it's you get conflicting information depending on who you, which website you look at. So you go straight to the source, sign up to these IRS uh, automated emails. It's a wealth of information. Half of it's not relevant. Half of it's trash. It's like interest rates, and you know you get a lot of. Uh, also, what's really helpful is they talk about the latest crimes and people who who lost, their, say, like they lost their license or they were arrested, sentenced to jail. And you get a feel for, well, what's the threshold? How, how much, what does it take for people to go to, you know, and you get a pretty good idea. And the answer is, if your tax problem is more than six figures, over 100 to 200 grand, you have a highly likelihood of facing prison time. It, that's my conclusion, okay, based on the information I've seen. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I read these uh, criminal tax crime updates and uh, bulletins and stuff, and that's what the conclusion I've come to. But um, if you want to do it on your own, um, yeah, just just be careful. The, the laws change every year. Um, you have to keep up with it. Um, uh, if not, you can you know hire somebody like us, and it, you know in the long in the long run it might be you know a better choice. Typically, uh, usually, often in the beginning, especially I can't say every year you're going to save money, but typically in the beginning. There's there's something that you don't know of, and but I don't know if there's there's another slide. I, I think I I'm not sure if I had in there, but it may talk about um, some specific things as far as uh, oh okay uh, okay I'm sorry maybe not, but there I didn't make a slide for it, but okay let me give you one example what a tax accountant or CPA can do for you. A lot of you don't know that um, filing jointly is 
much more beneficial. In Japan, you can't file jointly, right? Uh, um, I mean, you, you basically, each person files their own tax, but you can have the choice of filing jointly if you're married or filing as married, filing separately, okay? And uh, as, an, as an American abroad, the IRS allows you to, uh, even if your, your spouse is not a U.S. citizen, the IRS allows you to treat your spouse as a U.S. citizen for tax purposes. So essentially, you can more or less double your standard deduction. You can put in a put, be put in a more favorable uh, tax rate schedule and things like that. Uh, all, all you have to do is put out a statement that your both you and your spouse signs that says, um, you know, I would like to be treated as a U.S. tax citizen for tax purposes. Okay, the downside to that is but that be careful because yeah. Because if your spouse has investments in Japan, if, then... if your spouse, yeah, if your spouse has a lot of income, has a lot of real estate, owns a company, then that's probably not a good idea because they would have to do all the FATCA information reporting or be subject to, as I mentioned earlier, you know, ten thousand dollar fines per incident for non-reporting. Okay, that can be very daunting. Okay, but uh, option to that is the point I wanted to get to is there is a head of sort of in-between status. It's called head of ha household, okay? So you could be, say, like a, a typical American married to a Japanese, um, non-resident, okay? Uh, if you have dependents, one or more dependents, if you have basically children or grandparents or relatives living with you, you can um, qualify as head of household, okay? The only other requirement is that you have to pay at least half of the uh, household expenses for the upkeep of that household. Okay, so but it was typically you do right uh, to be do so you yeah, can uh, instead of filing married filing separately and single is the most punitive, the highest. You know you pay the highest taxes. Okay, so you want to avoid that as much possible. Either file this married filing jointly, but an alternative to that for spouses who might have high income or a lot of assets is. You go the head of household route. Okay, head of household allows you to say, in my case, my, the, you know, I'm American, so I would file as a head of household. My my wife would not would not be on tax return at all. It would just be the information on myself and my children. My children would have to have though a social security number. Okay, so they they would have to either uh, have gotten the social security number to pass or have U.S. citizenship to get a social security number. Okay. And okay, head of household, to, yeah, so. head of household is sort of in between. I think uh, you get fifteen thousand dollars in standard deduction for singles. Head of household, I think, bumps it up to about twenty. Okay, if you're filing married jointly, it's like uh, it goes up to thirty. So you get you get the in between uh, deduction amount, and also the tax rates. If you look at the tax brackets, they're very favorable. Uh, so um, you know. It's it's good to know. So, I guess, you know, going back to, do you need a CPA? Well, uh, now how many how many of you out there in the audience knew of that, right? So, if you did know of that, then you probably don't need a CPA, <laughs> right? But if you or if your income's you know, really low, I guess if you're just earning under the foreign earned income. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're um, even if you're under the exclusion, you still have to feel you have to claim the foreign income exclusion, which. You know, if you don't, if you're not good at math or not so comfortable with law, it still could be fairly daunting, right? Because you still have to fill out the form. And the forms are typically, you know, three pages uh, of uh, 
you know, check boxes and things, and you have to, you know, what's your what type of visa do you have, and when did you arrive, and things like that, and you know, it's just a lot of options that you have. So, it, you know, it could be a source of confusion until you get used to it. Okay, we have another question, um, which is: if you don't have copies of your old returns, can you get them from the IRS? Okay. Yes, the IRS, though, I believe you have to pay $2 per copy or $2 per year or something. Okay. Um, however, the IRS has a, a free transcript service. Okay. So, so David, that's a good question. So, um, a, a typical CPA would know how to read that transcript. Okay. And a transcript might be okay. For, for things, you know, related to business as well, you know, or maybe even applying in some cases, say if you're applying for financial aid or things like that, they might require a tax return, but sometimes for business or, or things like that, they might be okay with just getting a tax, tax transcript for, you know, you can do that for free. I think you, you can go back about maybe only five years, I think, for, for certain time. I think some transcripts, they go back 10 years, but it sort of depends on the level of detail you need, okay. So, um, but it is possible to, to get. Yeah, yeah it is possible. Back. If, if uh, in the worst case, uh, I think you can pay about two dollars per year, which is not bad. But um, there is a way. If you go to the irs.gov website and you type in the search parameters, transcripts, there's a procedure you can, you know, online. You can, you know, I think you have to open an account or whatever. Go through security clearances and then you could have access for free basically for for transcripts they have transcripts for your returns they have transcripts for your accounts you know so you could see how much say was withheld you have a history of payments you made refunds the irs issue things like that you know they have some pretty comprehensive options or basic ones that just show your tax return there's there's several options you have Okay, um, we've got two two quick questions from okay. a crypto enthusiast, it seems. <laughs> so can you recommend <laughs> any websites or resources for US citizens to read about taxes and retirement laws in Japan? Okay, I think I, I have to defer to, to Ben on this because you know, it's far, yeah. I mean, I, you know, taxes, other than the ones I've mentioned, um, you know, I think, you, you can get a lot of contradictory information, you know, so you want to go to the source, but when you do go to the source off, the, you know, off it's often it's more confusing. Okay. So, but as I mentioned, uh, tax, the law changes pretty much, you know, every two years or even sooner. So, um, you know, let's just say, for example, if you made some retirement investments based on current laws, what if you find out five years from now the law has changed and you know so you have to have a little bit of predictive ability as well right i mean just because that's the law today um you know a good example is the back i think a lot of you have heard of the backdoor ira right so it's it's a kind of way to increase uh, you know how much you can put into your ira by going through this backdoor route okay and so it's been sort of um under the radar, but because I think, you know, people have been publicizing on Reddit and on the internet, you know, I think it's caught the eye of the U.S. Congress. So I think there's a lot of movement 
to stop the backdoor IRA, right? So what does it do for people who've already, you know, invested in it, right? I mean, right. you know, Committed you've, you've, you've done this for right? you've done this for twenty years, and this has been your retirement strategy, and suddenly it's gone. I mean, so what are you going to do now? You know, and so, um, so that's where you that's that's why I say you know always go to the source. Um, if you do look at second, you know, a third third party websites, just sort of. Uh, be as, be skeptical that those laws won't change. A lot of times they might be selling you products, you know, uh, you know, they, they want a, a commission usually to sell you those products that promise tax deductions, but they, they probably already know, oh, they're going to change the law. This is not going to be valid in five years. So they're just trying to sell you as much product before the law changes or something. Right. So just, right. just be careful. And I, I would, I would defer to you, Ben, I think you would know probably better as far as investments, there's a lot of sites out there. I, I know of a few. My favorite one was um, the uh, Bogleheads. That's uh, wonderful. Yeah, the Bogleheads. Had, forum. Bogleheads was sort of the go-to website. I think John Bogle, I think he passed away fairly recently, but he was sort of the guru as far as mutual fund index investments and getting mutual funds at low uh, low cost fees, you know, less than typically less than less than a half percent, uh, pretty much uh, uh, low low cost tax tax efficient investing at low cost, basically. So, bo I think it's bogleheads.org. Yeah. Okay, but then I, then again, most of the investors are U.S. based. I, I found a few threads on Japan, but it's mostly if you you live and work in the U.S. Okay, unfortunately, there's very few. I mean, I think there's only probably twenty thousand. American residents with permanent residents, right? I mean, that, that's just, we're just a drop in the bucket here Something like uh, that. in Japan. So, yeah, so it's not, not a lot of information. Uh, you just have to kind of scrounge around and do your own research. In Japan, I like um, Reddit's Japan Finance sub is pretty good. Oh. Um, and then the Retired Japan Forum is a good place to ask questions. Oh, excellent. And of course, your, your, your forum too, Ben, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I read through your yeah, and I think I think the the fun thing about yours is you have a lot of sort of anecdotal stories. You know, I think you share a lot of personal stories about your health and uh, going through. Uh, I think you went through a very major kind of hip hip operation, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. A couple of years uh, ago, so, that was fun. <laughs> and, and yeah, you're sort of <laughs> and you know things things like that. I think it just makes your your uh, website. You know, your your whole presentation is is very interesting and. You know, on a personal level, it's not, you know, uppity up and, you know, sort of high finance. It's very down to earth and relatable. So, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know anything. Yeah, so it's yeah I think easy. all the, yeah, I think all the <laughs> listeners appreciate that. Uh, myself included, you know, I, I get kind of intimidated by high finance people myself, you know, so I try to explain it in simple terms. And I think you've done a, a great job, Ben. And Thank so you I very think much. All, I think you've done a, a nice job today as well, explaining things yeah, to yeah. our yeah. listeners. So, Thanks, are you, you currently accepting new clients? Yeah. So, um, currently, I mean, we're sort of past the the tax season for 2022. So we, we've 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 uh, gone through and done the bulk of tax returns. But of course, we're still accepting. U.S. taxes are really kind of a, a year long thing because there's always people. Say like if you're involved in a partner, a U.S. partnership or something, you don't get the so-called K-1s until maybe June, maybe this month. You know, most of the tax, for most people, they get their tax forms by February. 
But if you're, say, sort of uh, in a, involved in a partnership or some kind of LLC, your tax forms don't come until June. So those are the types of uh, uh, customers that we're dealing with now, uh, LLC people, people doing real estate and things like that. So uh, between typically between June and uh, October is sort of the next busy period. And typically after October, it's it's pretty, uh, we do a lot of, you know, that's when I do a lot of my continuing ed, take my classes to renew my CPA. Also, I do a lot of, you know, meetings at the time. I don't have a lot of time to meet with clients during the busy period. So if people need to meet, they want to have sort of, you know, half an hour, maybe an hour, or sometimes even more to talk with me. Typically, I'll do that in the fourth quarter of the year. Uh, typically, first, second quarter, very busy. Third quarter, a little bit less busy, but, um, you know, still I got clients trickling in. And of course, if you are one of those people, I'll be happy to take a look at your, your situation as well. How can people contact you? Can we, can we oh, share a link in the description later? Yeah, I think the, I think the best thing where Ben, you found, I think you found me through LinkedIn. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, they, they you so can far, I'll, I'll just on. post your LinkedIn yeah, details you here LinkedIn and then people can get in then, touch if, if they're yeah, interested. You can, you can contact me through the messaging there, or I think if you, if you look at the about section of my company, I think there's a, a email address there, sort of hidden. <laughs> but I still get tons of spam just because I put that there. But um, uh, some, some some people are able to email me. But uh, mo you know, most people they'll they'll send me a, a LinkedIn message, and then from there I'll give them my email, and then we'll follow up. Yeah. Uh, also, just a caveat: LinkedIn, you know, third-party apps are not. Uh, the IRS and other typical CPAs, they don't recommend you sharing your personal financial information through third-party apps, you know, like even Yahoo Mail, uh, LinkedIn, you know, if you're going to uh, share your personal finances, you're probably better off doing on, on email not uh, or an, another non-third-party app, you know, just, just to be safe. Right. The initial contact that they can get in touch with. Initial contact. Uh, you know, of course, we can uh, share our background information, and then we'll probably switch to email quick, quickly after that for, you know, just to uh, ensure security and confidentiality of information. Wonderful. So, yeah, so if you need help with your U.S. taxes, then just get in touch with Dean, and uh, hopefully he can help you out. Okay, I appreciate it. Well, well we've gone uh, uh, more than an hour and a half. Ben. It's impressive. <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, yeah. Hope, hope nobody, you Thank know. you so much, Dean, for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, I appreciate your invitation and, and being and patient answer all with those me. questions. And sure, sure thing. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be available to follow up. Uh, you know, if there's anything else, uh, of course. Um, you know, or if things weren't unclear, I know I, I sort of rambled on through a lot of these answers with some technical terms. So if things are unclear, please feel free to contact me, probably through through LinkedIn, and I can. You know, perhaps clarifying more layman's terms for, for you. And uh, great. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dean. Okay. And, uh, Appreciate it so much. And you to your and, uh, wonderful LinkedIn. clients. I'm thank, sure in the comment section. Yeah, I thank your clients for their, their, you know, very intelligent group you have here. Very, I can tell, proactive and, you know, very intelligent and uh, on, on top of things. And so I wish them luck in their, their tax endeavors. And I uh, wish you luck with your, your Retire Japan business as well, Ben. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Dean. Okay. Right. Thanks so much. Take care now. Bye. <laughs> Bye now.
Right. Thank you so much to Dean for joining us today and, and going through all those questions. Um, right. Daniel is not here. So <laughs> we've decided to postpone the regular um, Retired Japan TV content. So that would be the news section, our deep dive, the forum kind of dive, uh, everything. We're just going to do it next month. Sorry about that. The next Retired Japan TV is going to be on July 24th. Uh, we have a mystery guest because uh, we don't have a guest yet. <laughs> but we will have a guest on July 24th, same time, 8 p.m. on Monday. And I hope you'll be able to join us there live if you want to join the discussion. And you can, of course, access the videos on YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook after the event. So thank you very much. Uh, good night. Have a good month. And we'll see you again in July.